Okay, Jesse, last week featured one of the most vile humans we've ever covered. What's the story this week? After a charming 911 operator mysteriously loses two husbands to the same so-called natural causes, within only a few years, friends and family of the victims come together to make sure she never strikes again. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about second husbands, scheming wives, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn more about all the different tiers of support and all the goodies that you can get. Yay! And speaking of Patreon, we have a couple quick shout outs. So we want to thank Amanda G and Amy H, Sarah E and Lauren J, Aaliyah D and Monsita B. And we are super duper jazzed to get to hang out with some of you. We have our watch party coming up on, what day is it? Thursday the 19th? Yeah. So it'll be the Thursday, the day after this airs, right? Yeah. The day after this airs. So tomorrow for our uh, Such a Lover, I think, tier and up, we are going to be doing the first episode of Candy, which everybody has been talking about. So I'm so excited to watch. I love a Jessica Biel miniseries. I know. I heard, I saw like a news article that said that Justin Timberlake has a very brief cameo in it. Oh God. The amount of text messages that I've gotten from friends and family about the fact that we covered this case is hilarious. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. We covered it so early. I see a lot of podcasts doing it now because there's a lot of publicity. And so people are, I think, finding us through that episode too, which is kind of embarrassing because it was so early. It was really early. I listened to it the other day though. It was cute. Yeah. I think you can tell we're still like, we're starting to get our feet under us, but I mean, our personalities are exactly the same. (laughs) If somebody didn't like us then, they're not going to like us now. (laughs) But yes, without further ado, we're going to get into today's story. And I know that when I give you guys my sources, it's kind going to give it away, but I already gave it away in the lead. So this is going to be just one of those episodes where we don't get a whodunit and you know right off the bat that there is a villain at play. So my sources today are a book called Black Widow by Marion Collins and a television show I watched that I just found, which might be a great place to find new love murder cases. It's called Charmed to Death. Oh my God. Yeah, it's on oxygen. And so the episode that I used was called Dispatched Season 1, Episode 6. Handsome police officer Glenn Turner smiled down on his beautiful bride while they stood at the altar of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia. The 6'3 dark-haired groom, nicknamed Buddha for his easygoing nature, and Fat Boy for his large frame, which is, by the way, he's very tall. I think this must be a Southern thing. I would not call him overweight at all. 
was just shy of his 30th birthday and only had eyes for the bubbly 25-year-old 911 dispatcher who had turned his world upside down. Lynn was gorgeous. Everyone had to agree. The year was 1993, and Lynn looked every inch a 90s Southern Belle bride in her white satin gown with big puffy sleeves, a sweetheart neckline, long train, and big veil. Like the veil over the tiara situation. But some who loved Sweet Glenn feared that her inner beauty did not match the outer and that the young couple may be headed for disaster. Glenn's loved ones put their fears aside, their best feet forward, and smiled encouragingly at the altar as Glenn and Lynn attempted to light the unity candle, which is a ceremonial gesture in which the bride and groom each take a lit tapered candle, and together they light the unity candle as a common wick, which is meant to symbolize the two of them coming together as a couple and the two families coming together as one family. But the unity candle would not light. And the individual tapers kept going out as well. The congregation held their breath as they all tried to light the tapers over and over again and bring them to the unity candle. But every single time they failed, the unity candle refused to catch flame. Oh my goodness. A chill went through Glenn's mother, Kathy, as Glenn's aunt whispered, these candles being not lit, there's a reason for it. Glenn's brother James felt the same way. He would later say, it was like an omen. I thought, okay, there's your sign from above. Walk out, go on, walk out now. But Glenn only laughed as the minister totally abandoned the unlit unity candle and moved on with the ceremony. I mean, what else are you supposed to do? Nothing. You're not going to be like, well, this is the sign. This is the sign from God. I was ready to get married until now. So he seemed really happy and he was completely delighted when the preacher announced that they were husband and wife. In fact, one of his friends would say that he had a smile that looked like it was going to split his face in two. At the reception, James was pushed towards the microphone to give a best man speech that he did not want to give. And so when they push him up there, he did not actually want to or expect to make a speech. So he said the first thing that popped into his head, which was, I feel like I'm more at a funeral than a wedding. Uh, So everyone laughed except for Lynn. A look of abject hatred momentarily disfigured her pretty face. So though some members of the wedding party were making bets on just how long the couple would last, none could have imagined just how tragic that ending would be. And that within a few short years, there would be a funeral. And it wouldn't be the last funeral for a man involved with a seductive 911 dispatcher. So today we're talking about sex, money, and murder. So let's start with Glenn, the kind-hearted Buddha of our tale. Baby Maurice Glenn Turner was born the middle child of five boisterous and loving siblings on September 25th, 1963 in Atlanta, Georgia. His father, Dillard, worked the night shift operating a roto press for an Atlanta newspaper while Mother Kathy stayed home caring for the brood with imaginative games and love and care. And they had this nice little house that had a lot of woodlands around it. And it sounds like a very idyllic 
childhood. She was a very hands-on mom. And so she would create fun games for them to play. They would play in the forest. She would use different board games to teach them about counting and the alphabet. And it was just very play-based, which sounds like such an incredible way to grow up and learn. Yeah. And Glenn was just one of the happiest kids you could have ever seen. Even into adulthood, he has such a fantastic smile. And apparently when they were living in Smyrna, Georgia, and I guess the newscast said, send in pictures of like happy kids so we can all have something to smile about. And so she sent in Glenn's picture and they were like, well, this is just the happiest one we've seen all year. Oh, He just had this big, bright grin. So they were Seventh-day Adventists, and when Glenn was in 10th grade, he received a scholarship to a fancy Christian boarding school, and it was there that he made some lifelong friends. He has very, very loyal, tight group of friends. So he tried after graduation to do a little landscaping. He did a little construction. It wasn't really for him. And at 21, he decided to set his sights on becoming a police officer. In 1984, he was accepted at the North Central Georgia Law Enforcement Academy at Marietta and began his career as a cop. His friend and former sergeant, Mike Archer, said, you know, Glenn wasn't a real aggressive go-getter. He was more of a laid-back police officer. When something was in front of him, he handled it. But he wasn't one of those kick-ass and take-names type police officers. But he wasn't lazy either. He was just really go-with-the-flow. Yeah. And that's what everybody said about him, that he was just so good-natured. You know who I picture him being? Who? The cop from Bridesmaids? Yes, very similar. So I guess I would describe Glenn as he's big, he's muscular, but he looks like Jason Sudeikis and Ted Lasso if he was a little beefier. Okay. With Super Troopers glasses. That he was wearing those like cop aviator type glasses even at his wedding. On his wedding day, he's wearing those glasses. So Stop he was it right meow. Yes, he was exactly that. He was very cop through and through. So Glenn was in his mid-20s when he and a girlfriend got into a near-fatal motorcycle accident. It was very scary. So they described it in Marion Collins' book. And it sounded like they were hit by a van that was barreling towards them. And the girlfriend saw the van coming and was trying to get him to speed up, but they didn't have enough time. And he had just enough time to literally pick her up by her overalls. Like, so they got hit. She started flying. He reached out, grabbed her by the overalls and threw her out of harm's way. Oh, my God. She's describing this incident in the book. And then he basically, doing that, sacrificed himself because the van then ran over him and started dragging him in the bike underneath the van. And they said that this van was not going to stop. It was a hit and run. And finally, a car saw what was happening and literally like went into like the T-bone type position, blocked them from yeah. stopping. And he had been dragged several blocks at that point. How are you going to like do a hit and run where the body's like still dragging under? Like that's not going to work. I'm I'm sure the person was probably under the influence. It didn't say, but I just can't imagine any normal person who wasn't under the influence doing that. No, it's ridiculous. If I run over like a little can on the road, it's so loud. Like you can, it's right under you. So this is terrible. And at this point, I guess his chest was caught on the rear axle 
and his leg was just mincemeat mangled. At the hospital, a fatty embolism from the terrible break in his leg actually leaked into his lungs. And at that point, the doctors gave him less than 24 hours to live. So they had a priest come to do his last rites and they had his family come. They 100% said this is it for him. But miraculously, he survived. They ended up putting him in a medically induced coma and then he lived. But they were like, of course, he's never going to walk again. We all have to be prepared for that. And then he walked again too. Unbelievable. Yeah, this guy is insane. He just has this grit and this force of will. And then the craziest part of this was that when he got into the accident, he was actually a motorcycle cop. And he went right back to being a motorcycle cop as soon as he was cleared. No. I would be so traumatized. There's no way. Yeah. Yes. So he's back on the job and it was on the job that he eventually met a pretty 22-year-old brunette named Lynn Womack. Lynn had been born in Marietta on July 16th, 1968. So she never knew her birth parents. It sounded like she was adopted at birth or given up rather and then formally adopted later when she's a little older. The family she went to was the Womacks, but they got a divorce when Lynn was five and her mother, Helen, ended up getting full custody. Helen went on to remarry a man who Lynn never really got along with. Now, there was no reports of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, otherwise. It seemed like Lynn had a a very generally happy childhood. However, there were reports that Helen was very indulgent with her only child. So she spoiled her. She gave her anything she wanted at any point. Yep. And a lot of people feel like this very much backfired and was a huge disservice to Helen and her husband later on in Lynn's teen years. And it's a disservice to Lynn too. Clearly, always. And I think that's what people forget in these situations is that it's harmful to the child as well. It's not good for kids to get everything they want. No. Also, her name was actually Julia Lynn Womack, but she went by Lynn her whole life. So both her and Glenn, interestingly, go by their middle names rather than their first given names. So tensions kind of exploded when she became a teenager. And I think her mother, Helen, realized the monster she had created. And these fights got so bad that it eventually resulted in Helen taking her to a hospital treatment program and telling them that Lynn was on drugs. What? Yes. But that couldn't really be proven because it looks like the hospital released her after an extremely short stay and said, she's totally clean. She has no addiction issues. It sounds like y'all are just having some problems. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. After graduating high school in 1986, Lynn enrolled in community college and eventually became a legal secretary and then at one point a 911 operator with Cobb County PD. That was in 1991. So I also read that she had an ambition to become a police officer herself, but she failed the psych evaluation. Interesting. Yes. And they didn't say what part or why. So she really liked cops. She was known as somewhat of a cop groupie before she worked for the county. Apparently, she used to, even in her teenage years, like sidle up to cop cars when she was driving. She would like pull over next to cops as they were like hanging out in their cars and try to strike up a conversation with them. She has some like real cop fetish. She's got a cop thing. And some people believed a little bit uncharitably that her interest in uniformed men was what led her to her career as a 911 operator. She wanted to 
You know, if you're going fishing, you want to be at the fishing hole. <laughs> so yeah, she did indeed casually date quite a few cops before she set her sights on our 6'3 teddy bear with the great grin. And some friends did try to warn Glenn off of Lynn. They said that, you know, she's a cute girl. She seems really fun, but, you know, she's been around a lot and she's dated a lot of the guys at the station. So maybe not so much. And he didn't care, which is good. I'm glad that he didn't care because I don't think you should slut shame or like not date somebody that you like just because they've dated some other people, unless it's your best friend or family member. (laughs) So he was like, I don't really care. I think she's fantastic. She's gorgeous. She's fun. And they had a ton of common interests, which when I tell you what those interests are, they are so stereotypically male in some ways that it's possible that those were her actual interests. I'm not going to put like that down because I know gender has nothing to do with interests, but it also seemed like she was making herself into the perfect woman in every respect because she loved, let me guess, let me guess, let me guess, guns, cops, steak, barbecuing, (laughs) sports. Yep. But even more fast cars, motorcycles. Okay. And what is a sport? with really fast cars. She likes race carring. NASCAR <laughs> race carring. So she was into guns, fast cars, motorcycles, NASCAR, and she was even a talented motorhead herself. She knew her way around a car for real. Mike Archer appeared on the episode of Charm to Death that I watched and he said that she could take the dashboard off a car, make adjustments with wiring and god knows what's under there and then put the whole shebang back together in five minutes flat. That's skill. She's got skills. And if that wasn't attractive enough, Lynn absolutely lavished Glenn with attention and expensive gifts. She bought him a camera, a radio, these special mag wheels that they use on race cars for his car, as well as $1,000 snakeskin cowboy boots. Wow. That's a look. That is decidedly a look. Does she also like hunting? She likes hunting too, but they didn't specifically mention. I mean, going fast in cars and being around police officers was her biggest jams. Okay. Well, Glenn's cop friends were still skeptical of Lynn. His family was initially delighted with the couple. Glenn had told his parents since the time he was little that he wanted to be married and starting a family by the time he turned 30. And so he was about a year or two away, I think, at the time that he met Lynn. And they got married right before his 30th birthday. So he was so excited to have met his dream girl at this time in his life where he was very much ready to settle down. However, the family soon noticed along with Glenn's friends that the union was far from perfect. Lynn always had to be the center of attention and she would throw childlike temper tantrums if she wasn't. Oh no, that's not very good luck. That is not an attractive look. So... She also was very jealous and territorial about Glenn. And as far as his buddy's perspective, the worst transgression, though, was that when they went out, you know, with all their coworkers, she would very openly flirt and hit on other men and even his friends. There was one friend who talked about how they were at a bar and she sat on his lap and she's like, did you ever wonder what it'd be like to kiss me? Oh, that's not okay. That is not okay. Yeah. So his friends were like, 
we didn't like her before. We thought she was bad news. Now she's being a hussy all up on your friends. And we do not like that. So Mike Archer said that during their courtship phase and even eventual engagement, Lynn was likely seeing five or six other officers behind Glenn's back. And even on the day of their rehearsal dinner, Glenn's family even recalled seeing some guy in a car repeatedly lingering outside of the venue, and he didn't drive away until Lynn came out and got inside the car and chatted with him for a little while. Oh my goodness. His mom even said something to him. She said, who's that guy in the car and why is she in his car talking to him? And he's like, mom, don't worry about it. Just, it's none of your business. It's fine. Don't worry. So do you think he knew and he was just like trying to lock her down? I don't know what he knew. I know that she had a great force of personality. I think that she went in strong, love-bombed, bought presents, really got men wrapped around her finger where they were willing to overlook certain things because she probably went back in and said, oh, that's just so-and-so. You know I love you, baby. You know you're the only one for me. Don't be crazy, you know? And then he responded, yeah, that's my girl. I know it. Yeah. This all probably makes just a little bit more sense now why Glenn's loved ones were slightly concerned about their future on their wedding day. So the wedding did occur on August 21st, 1993, and was pretty much a shit show. So there was the unity candle not lighting. There was the hilariously bad groomsman speech. Where did he end up going with that? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I think that that's all anybody remembers from that speech. I'm sure he was like, just kidding. You guys are a great couple. (laughs) Thruple or quintuple or whatever. Whatever. (laughs) A harem, but the opposite gender. Yes. And not cool with everyone. Yeah. And I guess that she was being a real bitch. Like she wouldn't take pictures with Glenn's family. What? So it's just him with his family, and then he's in the her family's pictures. So it was very odd and very strange. His mother said they were all taking bets downstairs as to how long the marriage would last. I had to accept her for Glenn, but it wasn't a good relationship, and I hated it. We were oh. all talking about the situation at the reception. Everybody was Glenn's friends, the family. All of us were saying, oh, this is never going to make it. Why is she getting married to him? It wasn't a pleasant day. Can you imagine that happening at the reception, like right after the wedding? It was dreadful, remembered Glenn's friend Donald. We were all sad and gloomy and thinking this isn't right. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it only gets worse too. Apparently, Lynn got this special car to take them away from the reception. You know how some people get the special little getaway vehicles? Yeah. And this had been a present from her mother, and it was a Chevy Camaro that had been used as an official pace car for that year's Indy 500. Okay. So that's cool. especially that's very they're, cool. Yeah, they're both into that sort of thing. As the newlyweds were about to leave, the guests lined up to throw bird seed at them, which cool. I mean, at least that's, you know, biodegradable. The birds are going to eat it. Wait, have you never done that? I always thought it was rice. No, it's bird seed. What? Really? Yeah. yeah that's what we did at my aunt and uncle's. We had little bird I seed and not- little like mesh pouches that we took out and threw. Oh my gosh. I had no idea that's a normal thing. I always thought it was rice for some reason. Maybe it's a Southern thing. Maybe. So indeed, everybody's doing this totally traditional thing that I just found out about. 
And she got really, really pissed. She's like, don't let the bird seed near my car. And she started like yelling at their guests. And then sweet Kathy, Glenn's mother, was trying to put her head through the window to give her son one last kiss before he left on his honeymoon. And she apparently screamed, get away from my car. Don't touch my car to her mother-in-law. So the honeymoon did not improve the barely just begun marriage. Glenn had told Lynn that he would book a romantic cruise for the two of them and he would handle everything. But instead, he booked the big red boat, which is the Disney cruise for families with little children. Shut your face. So it's their honeymoon and it's just screaming children, little like swim diapers and chicken fingers everywhere. Stop. Yeah. So personally, I feel like I would find this hilarious and kind of charming that he tried to do this nice thing and screwed up so badly. And then I'd be like, let's just figure out where we can, you know, get off the boat and maybe just immediately. Yes. Disembark and go to some beach locale and just stay there for five days. But yeah, that didn't happen. And she was angry the entire honeymoon. Oh my God. No, this is not getting off to a good start. And the day that they returned from the honeymoon, she marched Glenn down to the life insurance office and made him switch his existing policy to her as the beneficiary, of course. It had been his mother and sister before. And she also made him get a brand new $100,000 policy that she was also the sole beneficiary of. His friends joked that she was the only police wife who hoped her husband would be shot in the line of duty. Oh, my goodness. Yikes. Although Glenn had been thrilled to begin a life with Lynn and was very, truly, terribly in love with her, immediately after the wedding, it seemed like their relationship changed. Lynn became incredibly controlling. She put Glenn on a $20 a week budget and took control of all of the couple's finances but not in a healthy way. It was that you're not going to spend our money. I'm going to spend our money situation. She constantly wanted more money to spend on frivolous things. She wanted a whole fleet of cars. She had multiple cars, which a young couple does not need. So she's spending crazy amounts of money and she's getting the couple more and more in debt. And eventually, Glenn was forced to get two extra jobs. So he is working full time as a police officer. And then he was also working as a gas station attendant and occasionally as a convenience store clerk at a 24-hour convenience store. Whoa. So he is just worked to the bone at this point. And she's not working at all? So she was working as a 911 operator. And that's where also the family was kind of wondering why Glenn had to work so hard when they were already a dual-income family. It should have been enough, the two of them. And some police officers do need to get an extra job. They might work in security or something like that, but it didn't make sense to the family. And also security was a lot better paying than being a gas station attendant. And one of his friends asked him why he wasn't doing that too. And he said, well, she likes to know where I am. She likes to know like where she can come see me. So this is not good. And it's really sad too, because he was very tired. He was downtrodden and he wasn't getting any at all. He confided in a coworker after months and months had passed into their marriage that they'd only had sex twice since their wedding night. Oh, yeah, that's not good. That's like, that's not a honeymoon phase. No, he told his friend that 
she told him that she had developed some sort of lady problems, some gynecological issues, and that she needed him to sleep in the spare room. So they're not even sleeping in the same room, and she is not putting out, and all the guys found out that that's what she was telling Glenn. Uh-huh. But they had a feeling that for some reason she was only having that ailment with her husband because she was certainly sleeping around with other guys. How did she not think that this is going to get back to him? Well, she started kind of trying to hide her tracks a little bit more. Within six months of the wedding, she was spotted out. And this was a few towns over. So it was in a different county. But one of the guys from their office saw her like with this other police officer that he knew generally and go up into the guy's apartment. And like he was on patrol. So it was very easy for him to kind of keep an eye on what she was doing too. Okay. And she was up there for a few hours and then came back. So they knew right away, some of his friends, that it seemed likely that she was cheating on him, but they didn't have any hard evidence other than she went to this guy's apartment for a little while. Yeah. There was one guy that later did come forward and confirm that they had had somewhat of an affair, but he said that the relationship was sexual but casual. However, she started a new relationship while still married to Glenn that started getting pretty serious. She struck up a relationship with a 25-year-old sheriff's deputy and volunteer firefighter named Randy Thompson. So basically one of Glenn's own. She has a type about men in these service positions, these helper type men. Uniform. The uniform, yep. So this affair began two counties over from where Glenn and Lynn lived. So Glenn was none the wiser and Randy wasn't either. Randy had no idea that she was married. She didn't wear her wedding ring. When he inquired about her marital status, she said that she had been married, but it hadn't worked out and she was long divorced. Liar. She is a liar. So this isn't Randy's fault. He had no idea. And the similarities between Glenn and Randy are pretty shocking. They're just about the same height. They have the same body type. They are both brunettes. They both had exactly the same interests that she had, the fast cars, motorcycles, NASCAR. And they were also both very caring individuals who were very close to their mothers, especially, but their whole families. Randy kind of looks like Farva from Super Troopers, but more handsome. Okay. So we're going to put up a nice picture of him in his firefighter gear. He looks very intense, but you can tell he's handsome. And she's described all over the place as so beautiful and gorgeous. This is going to be one where you guys think I'm lying to you. I promise I am not. It is the witnesses and the book and other sources that keep talking about how beautiful she is. I can get it probably when she was younger. There is this cool like She's got almost a like Pat Benatar look to her, only less rock and roll, but the the same like bone structure. But there's another picture I'm going to put up on the Instagram of her later down the road where she smiles and she looks like a psychopathic chipmunk. So when I first Googled her, I was like, I'm not picking up what they were putting down about how beautiful this woman was. 
Oh my god! But yeah, you guys check out the Instagram. I'll try to get it up in a timely fashion this week. So they hit it off right away. Randy was born on June 12th, 1968 in Warner Robins, Georgia. His mother, Juanita, who went by Nita, divorced his biological dad when Randy was two. And she went on to marry a man named Perry Thompson, who eventually adopted Randy, which is why they have the same last name. The couple did have two more little girls whom Randy adored, and he was exceptionally protective of, especially his little sister, Kimberly, who had epilepsy. So they said that when they rode the school bus, he was very protective and he always sat with her. And if she was having a fit, that he would like cover her body and make sure she was okay and like block the other kids from seeing what was going on so they wouldn't make fun of her. Yeah. So he was a very caring big brother. Nita described her son as a loving person who adored animals, the great outdoors, and football as a child. After high school, Randy immediately went to work for the sheriff's department and became a volunteer firefighter, which was a real passion of his. A girlfriend's surprise pregnancy when he was 22 resulted in his first marriage to 19-year-old Dara Tyler. Though the relationship would ultimately be short-lived, the young couple co-parented their son, Nicholas, who was born in 1991, very well together, and they remained in each other's lives extremely respectfully. Randy's mother, Nita, maintained that he had struggled with the divorce due to still carrying a torch for Dara. So that was something that they were so young and they weren't prepared for marriage. They didn't even know at the time that she got pregnant if they wanted to have a long-term commitment. And I think that he was a little bit more committed to keeping their family together. So yeah, he was pretty heartbroken. So when pretty vivacious Lynn Turner came onto the scene, everyone actually kind of thought that it was going to be good for him. This was the first girl that he had been interested in since his child's mother. And he was pretty sprung on her. And that was promising news because they kind of thought he was always going to carry a torch for her forever. And so not only was it nice to see Randy get excited about someone again, He had also been a little down about his financial situation. He wasn't making a ton of money. And what he did make, he was obviously giving in child support to Dara. So he was kind of worried about attracting women. And she like came in and was like, baby, I got you. I'm going to spoil you. She did the same thing she did with Glenn. She was like, I'll take you out to dinner. I can fund a weekend trip. I can buy you these presents. I'm going to take care of everything. And Randy had no way of knowing that the presents and the gifts and the meals were all purchased on the back of her current husband's three jobs. Oh, my God. So Randy didn't question it, but his parents soon became a little suspicious. Nita knew that a 911 operator did not make enough dough for all of the crazy cars that she drove nor the expensive gifts that she was giving to Randy. And Randy claimed that Lynn had inherited her wealth from a rich grandmother. That was her, her story. Yep. yep. What kind of gifts was she getting him? A lot of the same stuff that she got Glenn. It was if he wanted new tires, if he wanted a new car radio. So stuff that she could pretend was for her car. Yeah. And presents for Nicholas. Apparently, she came in very strong with their, his three-year-old child and acted very motherly and love to give the boy presents, that changes later on her behavior and her treatment of that child because everything at this stage, this early stage is all about getting these guys hooked. And you're not going to hook a father if you treat 
his toddler like shit, obviously. So she pulled this duplicitous dalliance off for so long because Glenn was just working all of the time. He was almost never home to notice that she wasn't home. And meanwhile, she was telling people in Randy's life, they would later compare notes, different stories about what had happened to her husband. She had told Randy and his parents that they were divorced. She told yet another family friend that she was a widow. And then I think that this is the like the grossest thing to tell somebody. She said that she was a police widow whose husband had been killed in the line of duty. Yeah. To say that when your husband is a police officer. Yeah. It's weird. And so basically, Glenn is kind of in the dark about this stuff until Christmas Eve. Now, they were married in August. Their first Christmas was kind of uneventful. This is their only their second Christmas together. And they've been having a hard time. And his family is very involved with Christianity. Christmas is a big holiday for them. And he was completely embarrassed when on Christmas Eve, she just disappeared. They were still home. They were supposed to go to his mother's house the next day for Christmas Day. And he had no idea where she was. He had to go to his mother's house alone where all of their families were with their spouses and their kids and just be like, oh, yeah, she had a a thing to do today on Christmas Day. And she had left Christmas Eve to spend the holiday with Randy's family. Yeah, she doesn't care. She doesn't care. And they said that she was like Santa Claus herself coming in there, making it rain. She got one of those motorized ride-on, like, Jeep-type toys for the three-year-old, which are really expensive. Another pair of snakeskin boots. And Nita said that the tag was still on them. And it said $1,100. And she could not believe a pair of shoes could cost $1,100. They're Python, baby. Yeah. (laughs) And she also got presents for them. Perry and Nita got a full on new speaker system, surround sound. So she was giving them these really expensive gifts. Yeah. So she's doing this and Glenn's at home. He's at home wondering where his wife is. So by early 1995, Lynn wasn't even trying to hide it anymore. Now, she wasn't telling him she was cheating. She just wasn't caring. She was going, I'm going away for the weekend. I'm going to go do something. And it's none of your business what I'm doing. So bye. And she was just doing that constantly. So by February, he had to admit that the marriage was over. Yeah. It was hard for him. His sister said that it was embarrassing for him. He had so much pride and he couldn't admit that he screwed up in marrying Lynn. He really, really wanted his marriage to work. We were raised that when you took those vows, it was for a lifetime. And he was having a very hard time with it being over. Oh. Which sounds like is why he stuck in there as long as he did. On February 23rd, he told his friend Donald that he was almost out of debt, her debt, and that he planned on filing for divorce when he was clean and he could have a fresh start rather than getting divorced and still having to pay off their debts as a couple. On the morning of Tuesday, February 28th, he called his sergeant, Mike Archer, and told him that he was feeling incredibly ill and he could not come to work. Oh, no. Mike could hear his teeth chattering and his voice was quaking over the phone when he said, I'm not going to make it in today. I am so sick. I feel like I might die. When he called in for the third day in a row that week, the guys that he worked with started to become worried because Glenn was a total workhorse. I mean, think about that story with him getting in that near fatal motorcycle accident. This was not a guy who didn't come to work because he had a stomach bug or a cold or something. Yeah. Also, three days of 
feeling like that is not right. Something's not right. You know, like when you have one day that you feel like death and, you know, that's that happens. But three days. That's what Mike Archer, his sergeant, thought, too. So he was like, you know, if you're still feeling this bad, I think you should go to the hospital. And Glenn said that he felt like he could tough it out, but he was having extreme fevers where he'd be spiking one minute and then he'd be freezing. He had cramps, constant vomiting, and constant nosebleeds that wouldn't stop. Like his Uh, nose was just leaking blood. So Mike did say you have to, have to, have to go to the hospital. These are all very bad symptoms. And he did eventually, but it was because, this is kind of weird, Lynn claimed that she had been looking for something when something fell on her head and she had hit her head really hard. And she called her mother and she told Helen, I hit my head really hard and I think I need to go to the hospital, but I'm disoriented so I can't drive. And Glenn's really sick, so he can't drive me. And when her mother arrived, Lynn seemed mostly fine. She did have a little bump on her head, but Glenn was really sick. And she's like, oh God, I'm going to take both of you guys to the hospital. Okay, Glenn is really not doing well. So when he went into the hospital, they believed that he just had a really, really bad stomach flu or food poisoning type thing and that all of his other symptoms were because he was severely dehydrated. Now, I guess that this emergency room was very understaffed. And in other hospitals, they may have done, you know, a tox screen. They might have taken some blood to try to rule out some things, but they didn't end up taking any blood from him. They basically just hooked him up to a IV to get fluids back in his body. And then when he was perking up a little bit, they were like, okay, you can go home now. Like I said, they were understaffed. There was not enough beds in this place. So they kind of needed him to take a hike because he seemed like it was just severe dehydration. But even the nurse was kind of worried about him. He didn't seem to be healed at all or well. And she would later say that it was a little disconcerting because in all of her experiences, when a doctor discharged a loved one who was still sick, their partner or whoever their family member was would say, wait a minute, they're not doing great still. Can you run more tests? Can you do an x-ray? Can you draw some blood? Can you get to the bottom of this? Because I'm taking him home and he's not any better and I'm going to be back here tomorrow. So do something. And she said that Lynn was like, okay, bye, and did not even question anything or ask them for like, what should I be looking for? When should I bring him back in? So that was a big red flag to the nurse who was part of their discharging process. Oh, God. Yeah, that's horrible. Meanwhile, Kathy Glenn's mother was leaving on a big, she had a big family reunion in Florida that she had been looking forward to going to. And she was supposed to leave early in the morning the day after Glenn had been discharged from the hospital. And she said that she would cancel her trip or postpone it somehow to take care of him. But he was like, mom, I'm actually feeling better. He had gotten those liquids at the hospital. He's like, you know, I'm feeling so much better. I think I might go to work tomorrow. Please go on your trip, do your thing. And so the next morning before she left, she called him one more time. This is obviously the era before cell phones. So you had to make your phone calls before you left to get in the car. And he didn't answer, but she was hoping that he was just sleeping. So she took off. She went to Florida. And by the time she reached her destination, Glenn was dead. Oh, no. Want to hear something that's truly gruesome? Nine out of 10 Americans suffer from some type of gut issue. Gas, bloating, diarrhea, acid reflux. 
They're so common that most people think it's a normal part of life. But with 80% of your immune system living in your gut, any gut problem can make it harder for your body to keep you healthy. And these days, the last thing any of us want is to get sick. Probiotics are supposed to be an easy way to support your gut and immune system. But according to research, 99.9% of the probiotics on the market die in your naturally harsh stomach acid before they get to where they're needed. This is what makes Just Thrive Probiotic so revolutionary. Their proprietary formula is designed by nature to protect itself when conditions get rough. In fact, studies have proven that Just Thrive Probiotic arrives 100% alive in your gut, making them uniquely effective at controlling gas, constipation, and bloating, and providing much-needed immune support. It's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO. And safe for just about anyone at any age, including kids and moms-to-be. Plus, it's been loudly endorsed by some of the biggest health luminaries on the planet. So, if you're looking to give your body the crucial immune and digestive support it needs so that you can feel your absolute best, there's nothing like the award-winning Just Thrive Probiotic. Get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code LOVEMURDER at checkout. Love Murder is brought to you by Audible. Rachel Brosnahan leads an all-star cast in The Miranda Obsession, an enthralling and voyeuristic new Audible original. Inspired by a true Hollywood story set in the 1980s where one mysterious woman developed relationships with household names all through conversations over the phone. Billy Joel, screenwriter Buck Henry, filmmaker Paul Schrader, and record executive Richard Perry are just some of the men who fell under her spell. A fascinating look at how far some of us will go to make a connection with each other. Also starring Milo Ventimiglia and Josh Groban. Listen on Audible. That's audible.com slash the Miranda Obsession. So Lynn claimed that at three in the morning, the night that she brought a still very sick Glenn home from the hospital, that she had found him acting erratically. She said that at one point he had tried to find his service revolver and she had to hide it because she was worried about him hurting himself. And then she found him in the basement attempting to drink gasoline. And she wasn't sure if he had managed to drink any of it. And that might have been contributing to his death. She said that she, at the time, did not believe that he had drank any gasoline. So she managed to get him into his bed and he did fall asleep. When she woke up the next morning, he was still sleeping. She felt like he was sick, so she needed to sleep it off. So she left to go for a four-hour-long shopping trip. I thought you were going to say jog, but shopping trip works. That would be a long-ass jog. And when she returned, she discovered that Glenn was dead in the bed in their spare room. Mike Archer immediately suspected Lynn of foul play. After all, what kind of trained 911 dispatcher would just leave a man alone for hours after he had been unbelievably ill, but then had also displayed the erratic and dangerous behavior that she described. Seriously. It didn't make any sense why anyone who is associated with this type of work would do that. He advocated for a full-scale investigation, but when Glenn's autopsy came back, it showed that the medical examiner had determined that Glenn had died of completely natural causes. Glenn had died of an enlarged heart in our common vernacular. It was a pre-existing heart condition exacerbated by his extreme illness. 
Furthermore, police had investigated the scene and they said that they found nothing awry. There was no bruises or marks or anything on his body. There was nothing weird about how he was laying and where he was laying that would indicate foul play. By the time the autopsy report came out, the grieving family had already buried Glenn. Kathy recalled how cold Lynn had been at the funeral. She was completely dry-eyed. And rather than talking about what happened to Glenn, she was complaining bitterly to Kathy that the police had taken her prescription medications while they were investigating his death. And she was like, I need those pills back. Oh. Yeah. Kathy's like, this is my son's funeral. Even the funeral director said that he found her manner odd. It had been odd the whole time. He said that it didn't even seem like she could summon up the energy to look like she cared, that she got him like the cheapest casket. And then she, when they're talking about the grave site, most spouses try to find a spot where there's two spots so they can join them in the afterlife. And she said no to an extra spot and specifically chose an area like where there was trees on one side and something else on another side where she wouldn't fit even if she wanted to go, which clearly she didn't. And then when they're doing the obituary, the family and the funeral director thought it was extremely odd that she refused to allow them call her his wife or use her name Lynn Turner She said, you can say survived by Julia Turner. I don't want it to say his wife, Lynn Turner. Good thing she used her middle name. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, everyone else is like, this is such a weird thing. And Kathy was like, I have known this woman for a while now. And I know Glenn told me that she has used Lynn her entire life like he uses Glenn. So why all of a sudden is she using Julia? Because naturally they didn't know that she had a whole other relationship going And it would not behoove her for some relative of Randy's to see that he had been alive this whole time. She should have just used Julia with Randy. Yeah, that would have been smarter. So Lynn further upset the family by giggling at the funeral with a male friend, then leaving the funeral early. And then much later, they would also discover that she went straight to the life insurance office to get the ball rolling and cashing in the policy on the same day. Wow. Just a couple errands. Just a couple light errands. Just going to peace out of here, sneak out a little early because that's what you do at your husband's funeral. Kathy was very surprised that the autopsy had not produced any evidence of foul play because she had been talking to all of Glenn's friends who were police officers, and they all knew that there was very little they could do based on what had happened at the scene, but everybody was holding out hope that this autopsy would show up with something. So she demanded a copy of the complete report, and they originally refused to issue it to her, even though they did give one to Lynn. But months later, Kathy managed to successfully appeal and get a copy, and she found out that they did say that it was this cardio issue and the enlarged heart, but also that there was a green substance found in Glenn's stomach. So she called the medical examiner and she was like, what is this green substance? Can you explain how it exists in our bodies? And he's like, oh, just everybody has green substances in their stomach. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And so she was like, "Uh, I am worried about it. She was just completely blown away that everyone believed that he had a heart condition because she thought that 
it seemed weird because he had a very intense physical every year, as police officers do, that they wouldn't have noticed a heart condition. And then also when he had that near fatal motorcycle accident, they were testing every part of his body and doing tests all over the place. So like, why didn't they pick it up then if this has just been a condition he's always had? So she begged the medical examiner to do more tests. She said, you know, I thought the autopsy was going to come up with something. Now that it hasn't, is there any way I can convince you to exhume him and run different tests? And the guy said, look, this is a closed case. He died of natural causes. I'm sorry. Like we could, but it's going to cost you $10,000, not the state. And I'm pretty sure that the results are going to be the same anyway. So that's just a waste of 10 grand. Yeah, but not if it's your dead kid. But they didn't have the resources for it. So she wasn't able to do it. I mean, this was before crowdfunding. This is before, you know, if you have a family that is living mostly paycheck to paycheck, you don't have the extras for something that might just turn up the same result anyway. Yeah, especially when the professional is telling you. Yeah, and this was really hard. This was hard on Mike, the sergeant, because he is in the police, and Kathy, who felt like Glenn's own had turned on him because they weren't thoroughly investigating exactly the yep. case. And I do, I can understand it from another perspective too, which is that without any evidence, other than she's a really shitty wife in person and a fairly decisive autopsy, I don't know what you would do with that. Yeah. Meanwhile, Lynn got that insurance money and she dipped. She completely stopped going to work without so much as a two weeks notice. And only four days after she buried Glenn, she signed a lease in Cumming, Georgia with Randy Thompson listed as her co-occupant. Wow. Mike Archer said that she didn't officially resign from Cobb County until she received Glenn's $47,000 death benefit from the department. She also entirely ghosted her ex-in-laws. They're reaching out. They're in grief. They want to talk to people who loved him as well. And she changed her phone number and moved and was gone. And they had no idea where she went. Lynn moved on very swiftly. She got a new job as an emergency operator in her new county. And she had Randy change the beneficiary of his $25,000 life insurance policy over to her from Dara, his baby mama, pretty much immediately. Like, if you're going to move in here and we're going to live together, then I'm going to be the beneficiary on your life insurance policy, which is wild. And Lynn now spoiled Randy with all of these proceeds from the life insurance policy. She took him and his friends on expensive trips. They would go to see NASCAR races together. She also bought him a rare pet cockatoo that cost over a grand. Oh, my cockatoo will do. That is a wild way to spend some money. Exotic pets. I mean, that's a level of spending money that we will never reach, Andy. I just, I think I'm okay with that. <laughs> so at this point, Randy was into Lynn, but... He was kind of having a good time more than he thought she was the one. And immediately she was putting pressure on him to get married to her. Yeah, she's got to get her next check. She does. So he was beginning to think, like, I don't know if this is, like, really for me. At one point, his mom, Nita, said that she was like, well, why aren't things going so well with you guys? And he's like, she's got crazy. She's got snakes in her head. That's how he described her. I think he meant, like, she's, like, messed up in the head or something. Like, it's not making sense. Or she's mean. I mean, if you guys know that phrase, if it's a Southern phrase, you can 
let us know what it means exactly. So by June, however, the decision of whether or not they were going to have a lifelong commitment was made for him when Lynn shared the happy news that she was pregnant with their first baby. Oh, no. Should have locked him in that way. She locked him down that way. What do you say? She got the bag? She sealed the bag, I think, is the saying. She sealed the bag. <laughs> Except for there was no bag because he has no money. So she, yes, she was sealed so. the man here. Yeah, he proposed to her, though. He wanted to do the right thing, and he felt like he had failed in not staying married to Dara with his son, Nicholas. And so he really wanted to take this opportunity to hopefully build a healthy family with Lynn. But things were not great between them. The couple was constantly bickering, even after they had a beautiful baby girl, which they did in January of the next year. They had a daughter named Amber. Lynn was refusing to wear her engagement ring and fighting with Randy. There was another guy who spoke to the author, Marianne Collins, who said that he didn't know that she was pregnant and she was coming on to him and nothing had happened between the two of them. But like he found out after she had the baby that she had been out on her maternity leave. And he was like, what? She had a baby? She was hitting on me like four months ago. Uh, yeah, so maybe that's another reason why she's not wearing the engagement ring. And Randy was starting to lose his mind because he said no matter what he did, no matter what he gave her, she just wasn't happy. He could not please her. And it was driving him nuts. By late 1996, the cops were called to a domestic at their house, and she said that he hit her. Later, it came out that he was trying to restrain her from attacking him. And somehow in the melee, she'd either hit herself or like he had accidentally hit her. But she admitted later that he had never hit her. She told the police at that point that he hit her. Oh, God, messy, guys. It was getting really messy. In early 1997, Lynn called the sheriff's office and said that her fiancé had tried to kill himself with sleeping pills. When the EMTs arrived on the scene, they determined the amount and type of sleeping pills. I think they were over-the-counter, like a Unisom type thing, were not enough to actually kill him, so they just let him sleep it off. Okay. Somewhere in the midst of all of this dysfunction, Lynn got pregnant with their second child, a little boy born on June 18th, 1998, whom they named Blake. After Blake's arrival, Lynn insisted that Randy take out more life insurance, so he doubled his coverage to $200,000. Oh, my God. Later that year, he also took out an additional $36,000 policy. That's a lot of money. All with Lynn as the sole beneficiary. It's a lot, a lot of money. Yeah, and I think around this time, it's nearly double I think, is how it comes to today's money. So that's a lot. That's a lot. But again, they're bickering all the time. She's miserable. He's miserable. I'm sure the poor kids were miserable. I mean, it's hard enough to have small children when you get along with your spouse. Yep. Let alone if you're constantly at each other's throats. And he became super depressed and he took another non-fatal dose of sleeping pills. He called his dad. And was like, Dad, I think I screwed up. And he was slurring his words. And luckily, there was somebody at the home with him, a friend of his, who was able to get him to the hospital and pump his stomach. So scary. So scary as a parent. A nightmare scenario that your child would call you and sound like that and you can't get there soon enough to help. His mother, Nita, believed that the latest attempt was a cry for help. 
because they, even when, after they pumped his stomach, they said that he was out of it, but he probably would have lived again, even if they hadn't. And at that point, she's like, this is the second time. They're clearly unhappy. We have to do something. We have to get him out of this relationship. So with his father, Perry's help, Randy secured a new apartment. He got a new roommate and he moved on April 1st, 1999. During this separation period, he found out about the whole Glenn thing. He found out that Glenn and him had overlapped and that she had been unfaithful. And he was really thrown for a loop about this. It also made him question whether she was cheating on him and that they had been having so many problems around the time that Blake was conceived that he began to think that potentially Blake was not his child. So they're fighting a lot and she keeps demanding more money. And now he's already paying court appointed child support, but she keeps telling him she needs more money for this, that, and the other thing. And he's like, I'll give you more money when you take a paternity test for Blake. And she refused. Oh, no. Yeah. She She knows. Yeah. She's like, I won't dignify that, but I'm fine. I don't need the money now. Bye. I always love it when people are very haughty about what they know. I will not dignify that with an answer. Yeah, but I'm going to just completely spit it onto you and make you seem like the crazy person. Yeah, despite all of this drama, a journal from the time would show that Randy very much desired to figure out a way to make this work, to make it work with Lynn and try to make it as a family. And he was constantly being pulled back in. And there was a real fear of failure, of failing yet another marriage, failing yet another set of children that he won't live with in his home constantly. Yeah. So nearing Christmas 2000, Randy made a vow that he was going to better himself. He told his parents this. So he already was enrolled in EMT school. He quit smoking. And that was also in part to help this constant respiratory infection that he'd been battling for months. And in May of that year, he had actually had to get a very painful sinus surgery. And then after the sinus surgery, he had contracted a staph infection. What? Yeah. So he was having a tough time already. And though he was like a little under the weather, he confided in his parents that he thought that the new year was going to bring greater health, a more peaceful relationship with Lynn, and hopefully a reunited and happy home life. But on January 1st, he was struck down with terrible flu symptoms. Oh, no. On January 5th, he was back at his doctor's complaining of severe headaches and persistent nosebleeds. By January 19th, Randy returned to the doctor still feeling ill. The doctors at this point believed that he was suffering from a chronic illness related to his ongoing sinus issues and potentially that staph infection. So they were doing pretty much keeping him on an IV of antibiotics as much as they could, and that's how they were handling the situation. So that same night, January 19th, he'd actually made plans to have dinner out with a friend When the friend arrived at his house, he said, actually, I'm going to go out with Lynn tonight. She wants to go shopping for something for Amber's upcoming birthday. And then we're going to go as a family to the Longhorn Steakhouse. And the friend said that he seemed very positive about this. And he even made a joke about hopefully he was going to get some tonight. So, yeah. So apparently she was still knocking boots with Randy over here occasionally. And so he seemed healthier. He seemed happier. He seemed more upbeat. And they end up going on that excursion that night. But at 7.45 a.m. the next day, he called the same friend and he was 
totally out of it. He was hallucinating. He said he couldn't stop vomiting. He wasn't even able to make it to the toilet. So when the friend came over, he said there was just piles of vomit everywhere. He was so weak. He could barely move. So scary. Yeah, he thought his friend was his bird at one point. What? Yeah, he was hallucinating. So Lynn ended up calling the house while the friend was still there. And she said, oh, my God, that sounds terrible. I don't know what's going on. I ate with him at the steakhouse last night and I'm fine. So I, I don't know. Maybe it's food poisoning. I can't think of what he had that he only had himself. But let me bring some food and some tea over and we'll see if we can get something down. So she brought over a Burger King bag and it was a cheeseburger, some cheese sticks and a big old thing of iced sweet tea. Okay. None of that is going to help anyone sick with anything. Ever. No, you want like saltines and ginger ale. Yeah, and like soup. Yeah. So he did manage to get some of the food and a lot of the tea down, but then he started throwing up again. What ended up happening is Lynn left at that point and his friends ended up taking him to the hospital at 10.30 p.m., but it was pretty similar to what happened with Glenn. You know, he had had this ongoing illness and they just believed he was dehydrated. They filled him up with IV fluids and then they sent him home again. So the next day at lunch, Lynn dropped by with some iced tea and a <gasps> grilled cheese sandwich. That sweet tea is poisoned. That sweet tea. He managed to keep those things down. And then he told everyone that he was going to go to bed for the night. The next morning, not a soul could reach him. So when he failed to show up or report for work, his friends busted down the lock on his door and pushed their way in to find Randy deceased on his living room couch. Both men were in kind of the same position too. They both were wearing just their briefs and they both were reclining. And it seemed like they both died in a position where they were trying to rest and recover. Ugh, so sad. Yeah. He was only 32 years old. Oh my God. A baby. A baby. And he had those three kids that he left behind. They called 911, and Randy was officially pronounced dead at the scene at 1026 in the morning on Monday, January 22nd. But with a locked door, no evidence of foul play, she's not even living with him at this point, and a well-documented bout of sickness for months, it was determined that Randy had most likely died of natural causes. Now, they're going to do an autopsy too, but nobody is suspicious at this point. Okay. Unlike Glenn's loved ones, Randy's friends and family, they didn't particularly like Lynn. Obviously, there's a lot of drama here, but no one suspected that she had been poisoning the father of her children. Randy's funeral was held on Thursday, January 25th. And just like with Glenn, Lynn called the insurance agency to get the ball rolling the very same day as his funeral. Unfortunately for wily old Lynn, she hadn't really uh, dotted her I's and crossed her T's as far as keeping tabs on her soon-to-be ex-husband, or I guess never was, soon-to-be ex-fiance, because Randy had lapsed on the payments for the $200,000 policy for nine whole months. Oh, no. Yeah. If it had been like one month, sometimes they give you a little wiggle room, but nine whole months, you're not getting that money, sweetie. 
Lynn was so incensed when she found this out that she even called Randy's grieving first wife, Dara, who is trying to deal with the fact that her young son has lost his father and was like, did you know that he stopped paying the premiums on his life insurance? Did you know? Why would he do that? And Dara's like, I don't know. I didn't know anything about this. Oh, my God. Yeah. Meanwhile, Mike Archer had quit the force shortly after Glenn's death and he had become a car salesman. He had told everyone at the dealership that he worked with what had happened to his friend. This very much affected him that he believed that that woman had murdered his friend and gotten away with it. And so he kept a picture of Glenn and a poem in his office. And so if anyone asked him, he's like, that's my friend. I believe he was murdered. We couldn't prove it. It sounded like it might have contributed to him leaving the police force as well. He was a bit disillusioned at that point. So through mutual friends and people who worked at the dealership, he had found out that Lynn had started a new family with Randy. So the day after Randy died, one of his coworkers sat him down to tell him that Randy had died in the same circumstances that Glenn had. Two men involved with Lynn, both before meeting her previously healthy as horses, and in Glenn's case, up until, you know, just three days before his death, pretty healthy. What are the odds? So Mike called the jurisdiction that Randy had died in and told the police chief everything. He was also connected with a GBI agent named Bob Hightower, who decided to open an investigation as well. And Bob Hightower is also on the TV program. Mike also called Glenn's family to tell them that Black Widow Lynn had struck again. Though Randy had been autopsied the day after he died, the report was not released until May. And the medical examiner reported that Randy had died also of cardiac dysrhythmia and a coronary heart disease. So the same enlarged heart type situation. There was a couple more things that Randy had going on, probably because of his ongoing health problems. But for the most part, that's what they said. The same thing as Glenn. When Glenn's mother, Kathy, found out that... The autopsy said it was the exact same thing of a previously healthy young man who also got physicals every year because he's a sheriff's deputy and a firefighter. She knew she could not be silent anymore. So what she did was she contacted the funeral home that had handled Randy's funeral and asked them to forward a condolence letter to the family, hoping that this letter would get into their hands. And it didn't for a couple months because I think that the funeral director waited until they came back to pick up something and then was like, oh, by the way, you had this card come to us. And it said, hi, you know, I'm the mother of Lynn's first husband and he died in exactly the same way that your son died. And it sounds like they had a lot of similarities. And I am gravely concerned that she did something to both of our children. So please contact me if you want to help or aid or try to drum up support for an investigation. And so when Nita read this, she was like, oh my God, yes. And it was also so wild to her because she had heard all these different things about Lynn's previous husband, that they had been divorced. And then later on, other things. And so she found out that she had lied about almost everything she had told them, especially about her previous marriage. And they agreed that something was wrong and that if these two mothers didn't do something about it, whose child would be next? 
Nita immediately agreed to meet and the two families compared notes and they were amazed at the similarities between their beloved boys and all of the audacious lies that Lynn had told and all the ways that she had gone about seducing them and then throwing them away. Nita vowed to help Kathy avenge both of their sons and she went straight to the GBI crime lab and explained her suspicions to the medical examiner there. And to her surprise, the medical examiner said, yes, absolutely. I autopsied your son and there's some things that I want to go back and look at as well. And I actually have Glenn's file on my desk. He did not do Glenn's autopsy, but he wants to look into it and see what happened. So he said, we're absolutely going to open this investigation. And she was just so relieved because she thought that they were going to look at her like she was crazy and tell her that there was nothing that could be done. Yep. So they were already on it because like Mike Archer was behind the scenes pulling all these strings being like, look into this guy's. And so the ME said that when he had done Randy's autopsy, he had detected calcium oxalate crystals in Randy's kidneys. And this can be a sign of some type of poison in the body. So he asked the lab to look for any trace of ethylene glycol in the blood. But when he got the report back, the amount that was discovered was so negligible that he did not believe that it could have killed Randy. It felt like maybe it was more of a fluke thing. But now he requested any tissue that had been saved from Glenn's autopsy, as well as the full autopsy report, be sent to him. And he was floored to discover that in the autopsy report, the person said that there had also been calcium oxalate crystals discovered in his kidneys. But no one had tested Glenn for ethylene glycol. So he then sent back Glenn's blood and urine and tissue sample that had been saved in the lab, thankfully, back to get tested for ethylene glycol. It came back very, very positive in a large quantity. And it came very, very positive for ethylene glycol, which is the poisonous substance commonly known as antifreeze. Shit. She was poisoning them with antifreeze. And antifreeze is odorless and has reportedly, at least at the time, had a somewhat sweet taste. So if you are putting it in sweet tea, you are going to be able to mask the flavor of the antifreeze. While investigating Lynn, the police discovered that she had been very hard up for cash, her lavish spending resulting in not only the disappearance of Glenn's insurance money, but big debts, and apparently she was behind on her mortgage. She had been counting on the $200,000 payday to bail her out. So they exhumed Glenn Turner's body, and it was just loaded with antifreeze. So the medical examiner ordered a retest of Randy's blood, tissue, and urine, and they discovered that whoever had calculated the amount of ethylene glycol had made a mistake and that he actually was full of it as well. So it was just a sloppy processing of the autopsy report and the results versus the fact that he actually did have a negligible amount. He, in fact, had a lot. So now that they know they have two guys who were poisoned with antifreeze and there's only one woman between the two of them. So they're reopening the investigation into both of their deaths, clearly. And they found crime scene photos from Glenn's death that clearly show a bottle of antifreeze that is opened in the garage. And then when 
the news hit that this could potentially be suspicious, Randy's death, a woman came forward who worked at a local animal shelter. She was the animal hospital manager. And she said that Lynn had come into the shelter and asked her what would happen if stray cats drank antifreeze. Um, so specific. Very specific. So this is what she said. She would later testify to this. So this is her testimony from the stand. She said, we discussed the stray cat problem she was having at the time. And she asked if the antifreeze had the same effect on cats that it did on dogs. I couldn't tell her. No one had ever asked me that question before. So the woman's name is Samantha. She added that she had advised Lynn to trap the strays and bring them to the shelter to be put to sleep. She wanted to know how the euthanasia process went, and I explained that it was an injection. She asked me what we used, but I didn't know the name of it. I just called it the purple stuff. She asked me if anyone could get it, and I said, no, it's a highly controlled substance. Samantha had forgotten about the visit until the investigation into Glenn and Randy's death hit the local news, and she recognized Lynn on TV. Oh, my God. I told my sister, I know her. That's the woman who asked about antifreeze and cats, and she called the police. Oh, my God. What are the odds? I mean, thank goodness she saw that news report. Also, Glenn's friend Donald recalled that when Glenn and Lynn had gotten together, she had two really big dogs. He said they were both like 100-pounders, and both of those dogs got sick and died shortly before Glenn died. Evil. His suspicion was that she was testing out the antifreeze on her own dogs to make sure it was enough to kill Glenn, which might have been also why she said, will antifreeze kill cats like it'll kill dogs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the woman's like, was- I don't know. I've never used antifreeze to kill dogs. So <laughs> I work with a real veterinarian. We don't have to poison the animals to death. Torture them torture them. Yeah. Make them unbelievably sick before they're put down. There was actually also a third guy that they believed Lynn may have murdered. (gasps) Yeah. This is pretty wild. It was a former boss named Ronald Casper who had died unexpectedly in 1998 while under investigation in the disappearance of thousands of dollars from his office. Now, Lynn had been his administrative assistant at the time of the alleged theft, and the investigation was getting pretty hot at that point, and they contended that it was either this guy, Ron, who had taken the money, or she also had access to everything he had access to as his assistant, so it could have been her as well. So in the midst of this heavy investigation, he unexpectedly dies. They decided to not pursue her as an avenue and she left the job as soon as he died. So they exhumed Ron, but there was no trace of antifreeze in his system or any other poisons. It was confirmed that he had died of a brown recluse spider bite. Oh my goodness. So one less murder charge on the docket for Lynn, but That did not clear her of suspicion to some of Glenn's loved ones. Mike Archer said, quote, I can see Lynn going to buy freaking poisonous spiders and putting them in bed with his ass. Literally also like the fact that they're calling her a black widow and like the spider killed the other guy that she's spider killed him. (laughs) Yeah. Now, all of this evidence is entirely circumstantial. 
I mean, it's a wild, wild circumstance. And it's one in a million that you could somehow have two men die of antifreeze and you're the only person they have in common. Yeah. And you're traipsing around to vets' offices asking if it kills animals. Like, come on. Basically, what are the chances that this could even be possible? There's there's only one case I've heard of that would have a solution to this, and it's not real. It's in So I Married an Axe Murder. The outcome of that movie could potentially fictional movie. The fictional movie could explain why two of her husbands have died with nothing else in common. The same way. We should watch that one for the watch party. It's so I know. Fun. We, I, we tried to find it, but. You know, I got to find it streaming somewhere. So yeah, they're basically like, this is just logical, but they don't have any real physical evidence that she did it. So what they really needed to make sure of was that they could mention Randy's murder at Glenn's trial and vice versa, because that was the crux of the entire argument if they have to try them completely separately and not mention the crazy coincidence that it happened before and it, then it happened again, then they kind of, I mean, they would be shit out of luck. It's already an uphill battle. Fortunately for the prosecutor and for both of the families, they decided to make both of the murders admissible in both cases. The trial for Glenn's murder kicked off first on Friday, April 30th, 2004, and the prosecution laid out a case of a money-hungry black widow who seduced both Glenn and his unfortunate predecessor, Randy, tired of them, and then dispatched them for easy money. Witnesses testified to Lynn's infidelities, suspicious behavior, and coldness. The animal shelter manager testified, as did Mike Archer and the medical examiner, on the stand, a detective named Mazarigos admitted that he had discovered the open antifreeze container in the Turner's garage, but had not taken it into evidence. He said that after listening to Lynn's story and trying to like basically smell Glenn's breath to see if he had ingested the gasoline, he had been satisfied that he had not, and he had not followed up on that thread. And the same detective is on the Charmed to Death episode. And he says, he, you know, I totally dropped the ball. I wish that I had been more all over this case. And, and sometimes these things happen. But, you know, you just have to own up to it and do better next time. Yeah. Altogether, the prosecution ended up putting up 68 witnesses. And the defense only put up five, including Lynn's mother, who tried to claim that her daughter had been hysterically upset and depressed over both shocking losses. So shocking that they both drank antifreeze. I think the defense also tried to say that maybe they committed suicide. They both happened to commit suicide by drinking antifreeze. But the jury said a big old nope to all of that. And after only five hours of deliberation... They found Julia Lynn Turner guilty of Glenn's murder. So I would call that a prosecutorial slam dunk right there. <laughs> Three years later, she stood trial for Randy's murder and was once again found guilty. The trial was very similar in nature. And though the death penalty was on the table for Randy's trial, Lynn was only sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Yay! Ale wop. But Lynn Turner, who 
is very adept at poisoning, took matters into her <gasps> own hands. No, she did not. When she hoarded her blood pressure medication over weeks or months and then took a fatal dose. She was found dead in her cell on August 30th, 2010, and her death was ruled a suicide. That blood pressure medicine, huh? I didn't know a blood pressure medicine could do that to you. Both families had already moved on from hatred to forgiveness for the sake of Lynn's children, Amber and Blake, and both expressed remorse that the children lost their mother as well as a result of her own murderous actions. Glenn's sister, Linda, remarks on the close of the show that I watched that it took a very long time for her to make that journey emotionally because she hated Lynn for so long. But now she said she could honestly say that she has only forgiveness in her heart and that has made her life so much more happy and fulfilling. And she's lived a truly blessed life with otherwise healthy family members and just a great team and support around her. One of the many heroes of this story, Mike Archer, also spoke to the Oxygen crew and said that his motto is love many, trust few. He said, if there's a little bird in your ear telling you that something's not right with somebody, sometimes that little bird is right and you have to pay attention to it. Well said, Mike. Trust your gut. Trust the little birdie. Trust that little birdie that cost $1,000. In conclusion, if your friends and family truly despise the person you are planning to marry to the point where your wedding goes down like that, then maybe you should consider an annulment, a quickie divorce. You got to get yourself out of that situation. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. The friends, the family, and even God was trying to blow out their unity candle. So uh, some bad signs. That was an omen. Look out for those omens, friends. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. So no python has to die for another pair of fancy cowboy boots. Love you guys so much. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. 